1: You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune in to DM Radio, the world's longest running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh
0: interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send
1: an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh here with a couple of real gurus, folks. We've got a couple of data governance experts on the call today. We've got Sarang Bapat from Mitsubishi Electric Train US or METUS, M-E-T-U-S, and Michael Baraz, most recently from Walgreens, the Walgreens Boots Alliance, both experts in building out data governance programs. And uh, it's a good time to be in the data governance field. These folks have uh, kind of slogged through the hard years back when you really couldn't do much. I often joke that uh, 10 years ago and beyond, basically, you could control data access at the database level. You could control certain things at the application level, but there was nothing in between. And both of those database and application are very particular, meaning you have to have someone says, okay, you have access to this. You have access to that. Well, the world got way too complex for that to be a a reasonable strategy going forward. It's just not doable. It's not tenable. There are lots of different things that have happened recently. There's a company, Okira, that just got acquired by Databricks. Uh, they do sort of dynamic analytic governance, which is interesting. There are other companies in that space, Immuta, Previsera, there's at least one other and they're all coming in to try to dynamically ascertain should this person have access to that information or not. Yeah. Well, what is the purpose of data governance? It is to maintain some control, some guardrail around the use of data for decision making, for reporting, for whatever the case may be. And we're really getting somewhere these days. So I'm gonna let uh, each of our guests introduce themselves and tell us a bit about what they're working on. First, Sarang Bapat from Mitsubishi. Tell us a bit about yourself and uh, and your data governance program that you run.
2: Hi, uh, thanks Eric. Uh, my name is Sarang Bapat. I'm a director of data governance at Metas. Uh, I have a lot of experience in uh, data governance, data management space, uh, previously in the financial services world uh, with uh, Luis, Wachovia, Wells Fargo, USAA. And currently I am in a supply chain domain with Metas where we are starting our uh, data governance program and uh, trying to set our analytics environment. And difference between what I have been doing before and this one is more, uh, of a rationale. So before financial services uh, rationale was more on the defensive side of the equation. So regulatory landscape was heavy and reason for doing data governance. Whereas uh, here in, at Metas, we are more of a supply chain, supply distribution company. It's more of an offensive rationale. So I'm excited about getting started, setting up our, our data governance program.
1: Yeah, and let's get Michael Baraz in as well, our other data governance guru. Michael, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do in the data governance space.
0: So, data is pretty much underlying all the application stuff that we do. So, you know, it just became obvious that that was a place to focus my time and energy uh, when when I was a developer, and oh, you know, over time, I just got more specialized in data, and then from engineering and architecture and other aspects of it I wound up just uh finding data governance was really the the weak link in the in the big chain and uh started uh, spending more more time in there started I don't know five or seven different data governance programs for banks for insurance companies uh oil and gas uh re- most recently uh, you mentioned uh, Walgreens and uh, just wrapping that up and um Working now at uh, on a program at Carnegie Mellon University in your very hometown, Eric. And, there you uh, go. Yep. And uh, working on the uh, Chief Data Officer Certificate Program there. And it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic adventure.
1: Yeah. And uh, data governance now is a very, very hot topic. I was saying at the outset here, I'll throw this over to Sarong and then maybe Michael, if you want to comment on it. Five to 10 years ago, 10 years ago, especially, it was very difficult to actually do this stuff. And so you would have policies and you would hope that people read the policies and abided by the policies. And there wasn't a whole heck of a lot that you could do to stop it. But now I think because of the confluence of several developments, one of which is the ability to manage data at scale one of which is the ability to write policy and have it actually execute. In other words, you write the policy, and that does, in fact, govern whether or not someone gets access to the data. That's pretty cool stuff now. We can do that. We couldn't really do that effectively 10 years ago. you, You might have been able to pull it off if you had real gumption and a lot of money, and you really forced it through. But I think also what's happening is the mindset is really changing. I think that Maybe it's the breaches. Maybe it's just a general awareness by the executive teams and by business people that this stuff is valuable and we have to keep it within a certain confine so it doesn't get misused. So you don't use the wrong data to make some big decision in your business. And so you don't use dirty data. So we're really, really kind of getting somewhere. Don't you think, Saran?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's starting to realize, I mean, whether... It's a healthcare to manufacturing, to financial services, to marketing uh, agency type organizations is data really is your competitive advantage. I mean, that is how good data you got of your own company, as well as how you can combine that maybe with the other third party data to make decisions or uh, campaigns or better analytics is going to you know, take you farther or it's going to break you, depending upon how you approach the data governance. right So it, there is a big realization around that. And to your point, it was a little bit of a regulation around privacy, a little bit of the breaches, a uh, little bit of competitive advantage scale. So all of these things are coming together and uh, technology is getting better and better. I think time to market to do some of these things uh that's what used to be much longer. Now we are at a point where it is compared, you could start something and actually show and demonstrate the value fairly in a short amount of time, which is, which was unthinkable a few years ago. So the, all of these things are coming together uh, for the good of the data governance uh, programs.
1: Yeah, and we've got a, one of our virtual studio audience members threw a question over already saying, or asking, do you think CCPA, GDPR, and the fines that come with those have inspired data governance? I mean, Sarong, I think the answer is absolutely yes, absolutely. without question. Absolutely. Right? But, it's, but it's not just the stick, right? The compliance yeah, is the stick. Right. What you want is the carrot. And the carrot is the value that you gain in in data literacy. And we did a bit of a presentation before the show today. And for those who missed that, it'll be on the episode page at dmradio.biz. But Michael, I'll throw this over to you. Now, I remember when the Enron scandal broke out and, of course, the government got together and they passed legislation, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which told organizations public companies i think primarily you need to document your processes for how you get this information you need to document who's working on what all this sort of audit trail stuff because well guess what happened the traders it was really the traders that were doing the bad stuff it wasn't the energy producers it was the people sitting on top trading and they created some shell companies and all kind of goofy stuff was going on there and then of course when the economy slows down you know the uh you get to see all the the, the bodies, if you will, <laughs> that are uh, in the shallow water. But uh, Michael, what do you think about all that?
0: Yeah, no, the um, the, the uh, positive side of this, you know, the the uh, carrot that you're talking about, I think is the biggest driver of this whole thing could likely be a data citizen, right? Um, you know, the ability to go out and go get some data, do some model, do some reporting, do something useful with data that isn't a data specialist, you know, the role of the person may be a financial analyst or might be, you know, whatever role in the company that isn't really a data specialist, they Mm -hmm. can go get the data. But to get the data, they have to know where to find it, they have to know what it, you know, which pieces of data, which are the representative or maybe authoritative sources of data to use for a given model. And all this stuff has to be documented somewhere other than, you know, Joe or Sally or whoever is the, you know, the resident expert and by the way you know they've just put in their uh, their notice that they're retiring in a couple months and then that goes out the door so you know, all the more critical that we capture all this stuff and have it in a place that people can access it across the organization
1: yeah and you really do want it to be centralized in terms of having what we could call a control plane Right, Saran? I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about is having a control plane because you have all these other tools that come into the picture. You've got all the data movement tools. For example, you have data catalogs, which are getting very popular these days. Uh, You can have other technologies, data quality, little bits and pieces along the way. But you want to be able to synthesize all of that in a program office, if you will, such that it's documented, but also such that anyone who comes in can kind of quickly understand where it goes, where it comes from, who's doing what with it. And right. if that's not dynamic, if that's not dynamically pulling from from systems of record, then it's just someone's theory. Right, Saran?
2: Right. Absolutely. And the data governance uh, end product or the portal, uh, Michael, you were referring to it as a, a democratization or the data marketplace Right. is somewhat like an uh, Amazon data experience, right? So idea would be anybody or a data citizen trying to do something with the data, comes to a data governance portal where he sees something about let's say customer and he types the word customer. It starts to show a lot of the assets that are approved by the data stewards on whether it's a report or the terms or the rules, whatever those may be to pop up. And if they click any of those uh, artifacts, it would tell who owns that, what asset was used. Uh, people can have like some sort of a, a scoring system to say it's a five-star asset, a four-star asset, like a Yelp type reviews. And if you like what you saw on the asset, you can say, I want to shop for that data, so to speak. You click a button to get the access to it. And it goes back to the owner or the data steward, but- It's that whole chain can be as so it's a simplified experience for the data citizen. So you can come to that place and be able to do that and data governance portal, at the mature stage would look something like that, which is self, you know, uh, you're doing this in a self service fashion. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Eric, it's all real time connected to the right source, authoritative source, documented information, Data quality scores overlaying on top of that from the other component, but it's all seen in one place. So you're Mm -hmm. not going multiple places for it, trying to call somebody to know about it. It's kind of an integrated view of your data at your fingertips. That's what you really are looking for as a data citizen, right?
1: Yeah, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. Michael, I'll let you comment on that. You hit the nail on the head instead of calling someone because that's what you used to do. You used to pick up the phone and call someone. And that's great, but now there's just a finite connection between two people over a phone line, and that information is not captured. You need to capture the information in a platform such that you can see, and that way you don't have to call people, and that way the person who was called doesn't have to call five other people to tell them what happened. I mean... You look at the the collaborative capabilities that have rolled out in just the last few years, and I often credit Google and Google Docs for really changing the dynamic on that. You would have expected it from Microsoft. They kind of came after with Teams and sort of retrofitting all that. But Michael, I'll throw it over to you to comment on.
0: Yeah, I was, um, was going to extend uh, uh, Song's uh, metaphor with the Google, I mean, with uh, Amazon, right? So there are two aspects of that I think are really interesting uh, beyond the one you made. One is, um, when you do go and find data in the catalog, um, the question is, which is, you know, of the 15 varieties of, or ver- versions available, which is the one to use? So one is going to be the featured product. It's going to come up first. And then, you know, on the right side, it might say, you know, and other sellers of data might be, you know, these num- you know these providers here on the right, right? And they may be some intermedi- intermediary uh, data sources, you know, warehouses, marts, whatever, right? And then the second thing is um when you're um when you're finding the data that you do need, you add it to your cart. And then you literally check it out, and then you get a data set delivered to you that's hmm. an amalgam of you know data from five or seven different places, all built into one nice easy to access uh data set.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so you have an audit trail, you know who worked with what, you know who did what, where, all this these issues about lineage. And you know there's a lot of interesting things happening in the data pipeline space, right? so companies will build data pipelines that are pulling from different areas, and you want that to be again as dynamic as possible. but you have to have some way to number one be able to capture policy, write policy, implement policy, and then monitor over time. And Sarang, in your keynote before the radio show started, you were talking about that, right? Having some key metrics that you can look for, like number of rules that you have in play, number of departments that have been onboarded. Talk about that just for a second, if you would.
2: Yeah, so as you scale your... uh data governance program or the platform, you will start to see, or be able to actually uh, show the metrics around number of systems that are onboarded onto your platform. You can say number of data sets cataloged. we can say number of data stewards using your system, number of data quality rules that are being used, uh, are being developed and used. And uh, all of those kind of speak to uh, pretty much adoption of your platform mainly, like who is using it. It's kind of like uh fingerprinting behind the scenes of the user base, right? What capabilities they use because a lot of times, um, you know, things come up on in, uh, implementing or developing a pretty complex capabilities around the data governance products. And it's one thing to kind of build those, but ability to see actual adoption of those is whole another. And uh, I think currently a lot of the, uh, platforms already do a lot of stuff that is required. So without doing much of a custom work, I think fingerprinting these things and seeing these metrics would be a very g- you know good way to start uh, monitoring and s- seeing on an ongoing basis how things are tracking.
1: Yeah, yeah and think, Michael, yeah, go ahead, Michael.
0: Yeah, in the, in the previous conversation, we were talking about um, uh, usage analytics, and again, you know, going back to the concept of yeah, not only. Who's using it, but how many times is this data set or this data attribute, this entity, whatever it is, how much usage is it getting? And you know, if, if at all possible, even for what? Because if we can rank the value of data, now we're getting to something really critical and understanding which data to govern, because there are literally millions of attributes the company would typically have, and you know, monitoring and governing them and managing them all. At, you know, equal um, level, it's not, it's not pretty, it's not smart, and it's really not even possible. So now let's take, you know, the old Pareto thing, 80-20, right? So I'm going to take my the um, 20% of the data, which is 80% of the usage, and I'm going to really focus my attention and curation on those items. The other stuff will rank, you know, to some level of, of need, and we'll, you know, have to draw the line somewhere at what we honestly can, you know, have the capacity to do. Now you mentioned earlier about automation, right? And automation of tools was a huge point of inflection where data governance became realistic to do at scale, you know, to do across the organization rather than just you know a couple hot spot things where it was, you know, it was it was useful or helpful or whatever. But now, you know, with with automation, the ability to go out there and and monitor new data sets appearing in some folders or some, you know, some data store, wherever, lake, whatever, um, you know, we we have a whole lot more range of capabilities and at scale.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. So we have the capacity to do these things now and we'll talk about this in the next segment performant this whatever you have the system must be performant otherwise people go around it that's one reason why we had all these troubles because people got tired of waiting for things i said i'm just going to go ahead and take a copy <laughs> of this date and have fun with it myself but folks don't touch that i'll be right back you are listening to dm radio Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio talking all things data governance. Can data be governed or only people, right? Uh, I think you have to be a sentient entity to be governed, to be governable right? Uh, But you can govern the flow of water, for example. That's what plumbing does. And that's kind of what we're talking about. You have different filters, quality filters in your plumbing. If you have uh, hard water, for example, you want to get some water softener. In fact, we were talking uh, again before the show in our little keynote with Sarang about Tide and how in different countries they have have R&D centers because the water is different here, there, and other places too. And you start thinking about GDPR and CCPA and some of these other Regulatory frameworks. Well, yes, we need to pay attention to those. But I think maybe Sarang, I'll start off with you. Uh, I'm a big fan of cliches, and there's a very old cliché that doesn't get much use anymore that just says, "Well begun is half done." And the point being, if you get off on the right track, if you really think through what you're doing, and you have a framework, and you've actually you know thought through all this stuff, you're going to be well on your way to having a decent data governance program. Whereas If you are like a lot of, well, a lot of developers are, right? They just want to develop, do stuff, do stuff. Business people just want to get stuff done. Who cares how? Just get it done. You got to be careful when you're mixing that with the data world, because again, you could wind up with data sets that should not be used for a particular purpose. And of course, that's part of GDPR, right? Is fit for purpose. Why are you collecting this data? What are you going to use this data for? I mean, here in the states, it's still kind of the wild, wild west, with with uh, the exception of California. But uh, Sarang, if you if you are a thoughtful organization and you document things and you work out processes and workflows and so forth, then you're going to have a much better chance at rolling out a good data governance program than otherwise, right?
2: I, I, yeah, I would agree with that. So, uh, typically, I mean, um, when you start out, I would uh, start with understanding what your program is about and why you are doing that program, whether it is more of a regulatory landscape or whether they are more going after building digital communities, what's the reason for going after. Right. And then typically when you talk about the data governance uh, rationale and then the capabilities, like what capabilities you want to build after the rationale, uh, I typically like to go after the foundational capabilities first like the better data lineage and data quality, because that unfolds a lot of your issues or the challenges or things that you need to get under control uh, you know anyway, so once you do that, so start with few pillars not all the pillars, because there are many other pillars you can talk about, like issue management, data change management, retention. I mean, there are a lot of topics that you can tackle in your program, but when you're starting out, understand why you're doing it, what few first basic capabilities you start with, and then pick a use case that is most impactful, more bang for the buck, and if it is the customer data that you are trying to clean up because the campaigns are not going well or uh, customer acquisition is getting difficult or camp, you know, any of that rationale, use a use case that would make a big bang for the buck for your program. And go after that in a complete fashion to say these three or four pillars, this one use case, this is how the end-to-end framework looks like, and then capture how many systems for customer, how many stewards we capture, how many rules, how many critical elements documented, how is the lineage looks like, and make a story out of that. Because once you do all of that, that initial push and the uh, uh, communication and the right uh, you know publication about how it went, I think you are well on your way. To your point, well begun is half done. You kind of get that traction with the, right use case, not too big because mm-hmm. people who are not familiar in the enterprise lose touch of, you know, if you try to throw a lot of tech and uh, business processes and on top of what they don't know, it, the programs are going to fizzle pr- pretty quickly. So you, you need a right kind of balance there.
1: Yeah, you have to focus on the low-hanging fruit. And, you know, uh, Michael Baraz, I'll bring it back in. I remember these exact kinds of conversations when talking about, master data management, right? Product information management was arguably first. And Saranga can sure, can probably comment on that with a supply chain focus these days. But the question was, well, where do you start? What do you want to master first? Do you want to master your customer data? Do you want to master your product data? I mean, this world of master data management is very tightly woven together with data governance, right, Michael?
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, that's kind of the notion of multi-domain master data management mm-hmm. versus single domain and mm-hmm. tools are kind of optimized for that or not, depending. And, um, the you know, the better tools, at least in my opinion, the better tools that um, do support that idea of multi-domain master data. Because if you're mastering customer in one tool and, pro, you know, uh, your articles and products in another tool, or even if they're in the same tool, but different, you know, kind of separated, not really brought together. You know, I talk about the knowledge graph a lot. Um, if they're not, you know, if they're not working together, you've got, you know, major major um, disparities or, you know, impedance mismatch, you might say. Mm-hmm. And it's really critical that you do it. Now, the other thing we can do is we can parallelize, you know, um, to get, you know, the fast track going. We could have different uh, SMEs and different domain, you know, different owners, different data uh, areas. Um, they can do their, they can start their thing and, and, you know, you just kind of project manage it and you can set up, you know, two, three, four different, uh, master do, uh master data tracks concurrently. And, you know, the same thing with other areas. So I think that's really helpful to do if you're bootstrapping something.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And uh, Sarang, <laughs> I'll throw this one over to you. Product information management, supply chain management, of course, between the tariffs that we had a few years ago on China and then of course, COVID and now this war in Ukraine lots and lots of disruptions in supply chain. And if you're in a manufacturing company, that's a really big deal. Like all of a sudden you really need to understand which products go into which, in other words, which parts go into which products, where do we get these things from? How can we manage this whole web of details? You know, The problem with supply chain management is you have in many cases, thousands and thousands of products. Some of them are very, very small, but they're crucial. Without this one little piece, without that chip from Taiwan, you're going to have a hard time finishing that car. So tell us a bit about how data governance and these sorts of programs can facilitate even a very unwieldy discipline like supply chain management.
2: And uh, that's an excellent point because the product management, what you call is, I would say it's some base material management, like setting up of the material or the base information. And literally that information, which is, as simple things as your name, dimensions, weights, other things have significant impacts on logistics, how the logics are written on how the deliveries are done. Uh, you know, when things come in, inside the warehouse, how do they uh, get stored? So there is a lot more to it than just the basic uh, setting up the material. That has a real implications on how that material, when it goes out, material becomes an inventory, that's when things starts to scale. So you may have 20,000 materials only that gets to 2 million deliveries a month or something like that. Each of them has combinations of those 20,000 materials. But if that base information in those 20,000 is not accurate, it poses all kinds of problems, either in the warehouse or in the order entry or in the logistics. So it kind of downstream impacts are tremendous so controlling that at the source and making sure the master data is accurate and it's you know well understood quality rules return on it ongoing monitored is a huge advantage
1: yeah that's right and you know michael you talked about the pareto principle the 8020 rule you know i've learned a long time ago in financial services for example in banks when they close at the end of the month the exceptions are the killer. Like most of the accounts go through fine, but the handful that don't, that's what takes all the time. And when we're talking about these governance programs, you want to solve problems like Sarank said as, as far upstream as you possibly can, because the error propagation spreads out across that whole there fans out across that whole array of, of workflows and processes. And what does that mean? Tons and tons of manual work, fixing the same problem again and again and again. Uh, This is one of my uh, soapbox issues that crushes morale and the organization, right, Michael?
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, thinking about this, again, more holistically, there's the relationship between things, and that's the concept of ontology, right? So, you know, like we want to provide which is the authoritative source of data and other, you know, kind of governance-related features like that, the ontology provides an awful lot of the graph of knowledge of these relationships between it. So if we're talking supply chain stuff, like what is the impact or what does it relate to, or, you know, how is that connected to something else so that we don't miss something? So we have, you know, the real complete line of sight of what we're what we're thinking we're supposed to be fixing or managing or addressing.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and again, we get back to the importance of data for driving decisions, the importance of getting fresh data too, right? So Ron, like you want data as fresh as possible. And that means you're not going to have time to do all sorts of manual transformations on things. I mean, this is what has happened over the years is that people will get a source of data, they'll load it into Excel, they play around with it. And in their little particular worldview, they understand what that all means. But the rest of the business doesn't and so that's where the problems occur right as you now lost that line of sight about what's happening at this one juncture which may not seem like a big ideal or big deal to someone but to the people downstream yeah that's a big deal what do you think saran
2: yeah and that's kind of uh extending to the concept of the data lineage right so where it came from and where it is hopping all the way to through the organizational asset to where it is going and like it's kind kind of quite critical that many a times what happens is something goes through three or four hops and quality checked only on the far left once. Uh, assuming that everything looked good on here, but by the time it reaches the all all the way to the target, crossing three or four hops, something happened along the way. So we didn't check the quality and across each of those hops would cause problems. So, you know, knowing where it is going, how many hops it is crossing. And checking quality at each of those hops is kind of critical at the points that make sense. So at the point of consumption, at the kind of production, at the point of where it is landing into your warehouse. So the critical spots where it is landing and from where there are other downstream users, I think it's very important to check the quality on all of those hops, not just on one or the other. Because You might have a really good source data on the far left, but then the transformations cause something to break on the downstream that was not caught. So those kinds of things, these platforms like data governance or adding rules at multiple uh, hops, showing the lineage, I think those are very powerful ways to make sure the entire supply chain for the data is right.
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, and Michael, you want to get input from people along that whole supply chain, right? You want people on the front end, for example, to have the ability to comment on something and say, hey, all of a sudden I'm not getting this data, whereas before I was, even a customer service rep, for example, why did this data go away? That gets into this observability stuff and being able to monitor when a, a data feed Changes significantly when it stops altogether. That triggers alerts, but you know you have to watch out to not have too many alerts. You want to have just enough alerts to know what to work on, right, Michael?
0: Yeah, there's two aspects of that immediately come to my mind. One is anomaly detection. You know the rules that we keep talking about. Where are the rules coming from? A lot of them are coming from SMEs, but then there's rules that just pop up that no one ever really documented. That really are critical and machine learning. And anomaly detection go hand in glove. And that is one of the things that, you know, get queued up for um, a data steward approval or SME approval or something like that. So then it becomes part of the rule set, right? And then the second thing is, you know, you're talking about um, observability and and the new data observability tools are phenomenal because they give you line of sight to the uh, operational aspect, the data ops stuff. So is the product, you know, is the data getting from point A to point B on time and you know as as published are we getting it as you know it, what's being sent are, are we getting that as received in the same uh, you know in the same uh, level of quality so no no issues there and then you got you know the the, the concept of the the water distribution system. You got a main, right? So you got your data pipeline. You got a main distribution. Then you got all these tributaries. And you were talking about Excel and all those things. And it's like, you know, we gotta. We ideally would want to stop people from taking extracts and work in That's right. the environment, the analytics platform, That's so right. that they don't go off thinking they're working off of current data when in fact it's two days old and they're not getting refreshes. And um, you know, then there's the management of them. So you're going, you know, back to your your main title of this of this uh, whole series today and that is we've got to manage the people and part of that is uh trying to get agreement on what data people can use and how they get um access or approval to use it what are the terms and conditions for data sharing what are the Mm -hmm. you know the lifetime the term limits of the of the of the data when does it expire is there a refresh you know back to my previous point so there's like a ton of things that we've got you know basically wrapped into this concept of a data sharing agreement and it's not like we're trying to be you know restrictive in the concept of governance but we're trying to be supportive of what the people are using their data for and making sure that they're going to get what they think they're looking for instead right. of, instead of oh i got it all figured out and yet they don't have a they don't yeah. have the insight to know
1: that's right now that's a that's a very very good point and in the next segment i want to kind of get into projects and and what is reasonable to expect your team to deliver and that kind of thing. So, folks, don't touch that down. We're talking to two data governance experts today on DM Radio. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio, talking to Sarang Bapat and Michael Baraz, two data governance experts. And you know the the topic in my mind now is project size. You know, in the development world, you typically have sprints. A lot of times, it'll be a two week sprint. You send off your folks, okay, go build me a data pipeline. They come back. You do your stand up every day and say, okay, what are you where are you? What problems are you having? All that kind of fun stuff. Can you give our audience a sense of what is a reasonable expectation for a data governance program for the first step, the second step? How long does it take? I know it depends upon the size of the organization, et cetera, but maybe, Sarang, first, just some thoughts on what is reasonable to expect? How long should these things take? Go ahead.
2: Um, I I mean, uh, the first thing is um, trying to figure out uh, what use case you are going to go after and uh, normally uh, at a minimum there is a set of activities that you are doing for when you are talking about onboarding a business unit and when you say we are onboarding a business unit as in you are doing you know providing training on what the tool looks like what they need to do on the business metadata technical metadata Uh, data quality rules that they have to give you then the the tool implementation and then the uat and all of that so usually depending upon like if i would say if you have a mid-sized business unit with about like three or four assets or you know up to 50 business critical elements something like that with 100 or so rules to begin with uh with the set of tools that we have now where a lot of those rules, uh, Michael, you alluded to a while back about the machine learning-based rules and others, which uh, are very helpful to begin with. So you, your data stewards don't have to write a whole lot of rule in, rules initially because that used to, uh, like giving requirements of that used to take a long time. So uh, if you carve out like, in my opinion, six to eight weeks for that first implementation for a business unit, which is about five, you know, Uh, assets with about 100 cdes with 100 rules or so i think that's a good estimate for them to uh, start marching towards and that's a prerequisite for all of that is your platform is ready tool is i mean the data governance platform is ready and tool is built your resource who is going to technically customize all of that is ready and now you're literally onboarding your business unit so for that type of activity, I would say that's a good guess.
1: Yeah, that's good information. Michael, what are your thoughts on the time yeah, it takes to talk, get up and running?
0: Right. Talking about the people side of the equation. So InfoSec has got a stake in this game, and they're not going to let you have access to all the data, So they're, or they're not going to, you know, they're, they're going to manage how you get access to it, I should say, and what you get access to. So doing data quality, um, you really need to be able to parse through data, and you know, sometimes getting uh, data sec to, uh, you know, infosec to uh, buy on, buy into this thing and give us approval to get to some of these, you know, more sensitive data sets is really hard and it can take months. You know, so, um, you know, two week sprint, um, we, we get, you know, an awful lot of rollovers to uh, the next thing. So um, we've used Kanban for certain things and um, um, scrum for others. You know, we're, we're definitely, you know, leaning toward the agile world but there's two different flavors where well, there's several different flavors too, which are you know the ones I just mentioned. And then there's other ones, uh, but, you know, I think you just have to be realistic about what can you do in two week sprints. So things that are projects, you know, definitely, you know, they're, they're fine to do um, many of those things in a, you know, in a, a two week sprint type of scrum method. But if you're, if you're looking at more foundational stuff, you know, your typical setup stuff, your infrastructure uh, development and all that, you might, Go
1: kind of Yeah. And I know that there are repackaged data models that you can use. There've been those things for a long, long time now. And I think there are probably a decent number of rules like, well, BRMS, right? Business rule management systems. We've had those for a long time too. How portable, sarong, are some of these data quality rules, or or do they have to be designed bespoke for a certain environment for a certain technology? In other words, how declarative can a data quality rule be? I think
2: the with the newer set of tools, um, the machine learning based ones, or the what they specifically call as the, the reusable rules, I think hmm. those are very. Um, business agnostic, so to speak, so that they can be fairly uh, nicely leveraged. But then if there are very customized ones, I think those are something we have to look at. But um, the reusable rules are definitely the ones that can be uh, port- ported directly.
1: Yeah, yeah, Michael, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, so that's where going back to you mentioned data models, and I'll bring the term back ontology, you know, because they're very closely related when I've got a class of data and, and then I could basically apply the rule at the class, then every instance of that, every attribute where that occurs, I don't have to write new rules. I right. should be able to publish the rule for anything that is of that class. And now, you know, that class goes back to how we build ontologies. So again, if we want to do stuff at scale, we can, we can help ourselves by doing it that way, by making sure we've got a good, ontology being able to classify data as it comes you know as as new attributes and so on comes into the into the application into the into the ecosystem and then build off of that and if you know if there's things that don't fit that well then now we divide the class into subclasses and we just continue to build out that ontology and make it more granular
1: yeah that, that makes a lot of sense because you you want to be able to um again, solve problems as far upstream as possible, and if if at all possible, at the source, right? So really understanding your sources of data. I think ERPs are pretty well understood. Now, there is all this third-party data that companies are getting these days, and that's a whole separate ball of wax, right, Sarang, third-party data?
2: Absolutely. And I think the part of the challenge with the third parties is – Some of the rules or some of the requirements have to be baked up into the contracts. So this is more of like a contractual when you're actually signing up with them, how much information you are sending and whether you are doing reconciliations to make sure what you're sending us is complete, that is landing in our space and all of that. So there is a lot of uh, back and forth between how do you set some of those policies into the contract little bit of a, a challenging twist to that because of the legal aspects of it.
1: Mm-hmm. But that is, I mean, we talked earlier about policies that you can now write and enforce Absolutely. at the access level. I mean, you bake that into your data governance platform and we're getting closer and closer, especially with these large language models of being able to understand what this stuff says. Yeah. I mean, this will, this will be a bit off track, but, you know, governance, like the government, right? They have laws and you have regulations that they get instantiated and then they have to be enforced and so on and so forth. And uh, one of my ideas was to attach chat TPT to the federal register. And anytime something shows up in the federal register, have an automatic story to spin out to say, okay, here's what happened. Here's how it matters to you. Like, wow, we could suddenly make sense of these bills that are like 2000 pages long, (laughs) but maybe I'm getting optimistic. You mean
0: uh, like Nancy Pelosi said, uh, we never even read these 26,000 pages of law.
1: Yeah, you have to pass it to find out what's in it, right? Right. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that at a large organization saying, no, you just got to accept the state of governance policy without reading it, and uh, you'll find out later.
0: <laughs> yeah, what well, we published the SEC, right? Same I think
1: you'd be in jail is what would happen. I mean, and that is actually, I mean, a good closing comment to just throw out there is that uh, increasingly... Organizations understand that there are benefits to data and there are risks to data, certainly PII and breaches and so on and so forth. And Sarang, that is another very good driver because if you're this, you know, right now the CEO and the CFO have to sign off on things, but I think you're going to see increasingly the CDO have to sign off on things too. What do you think real quick, Sarang?
2: Yeah, some of those are, uh, I mean, data and uh, data and cyber, they're all converging together. And to your point, It's getting to that level of like actually how financial declaration is kind of like a data declaration might be a real thing. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you have to declare what what you're doing, what your policy is, and have some capacity to articulate what are we trying to accomplish here. I really do like that as a tactic, as a as a methodology. Quite frankly, when you launch your project, what is the purpose of this project? We want to improve customer experience by mastering our customer data and increasing open rates or decreasing churn rates or whatever the case may be, because then you can track it over time and you can see, all right, we put this program in place in July and by September, our, our numbers went sideways. Well, what's going on? That's It's a reality check that you want to bake into these things, right? You never want to do something for the sake of doing it. You're always trying to do something to improve the business. And by having these declarations, very clearly baked into your data governance program or your center of excellence or whatever, now you're actually getting somewhere because, again, you can manage that. And what you know, what do senior executives do want? They want to be able to articulate what is happening, whether it's to the board or to an auditor or to a potential partner, for example. There are all these different conversations you can have. The more you know about your data, the more you know about your programs, the better off you're going to be. Well, folks, that wraps it up for us for this episode. We have a podcast bonus sec- segment coming up next. Look up Michael Baraz and Sarang Bapat on LinkedIn. You've been listening to DM Radio. All right, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio, talking to Michael Baraz and Sarang Bapat. Michael, you had a comment you wanted to get in there about sustainability at the end. What was that?
0: Right. So, you know, we make up these roles, we make up these policies, you know, we figure this stuff out, but it's not static world we live in, you know, it's a dynamic world. So, you know, in making sure there's a change control process, uh, first of all, and then being part of the bigger change control process that goes on in the organization. So you're talking about, you know, in the IT side of the house, and you're talking about in the, in the business process side of the house, where there are implications to data, is there is there a data um, function that's part of that um, analysis, that uh, that impact analysis of of a proposal, right? Whether it's a change or a new capability function, or you know just a tweak to something. So if we've got to do some work to catalog new data, if we've got to do some work to you know change some aspect of this stuff, do we have the understanding that this need occurs? This this well, this uh, change is about to uh, land on us and we've got some work to do
2: yeah and is there a budget for that
0: you know it's got to be included as part of the proposal okay it's going to cost us much you know for this this and this and then you know we've got a line item here for you know the 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 data office right and what they need to do to bring
1: that data in to land it and man it, uh, manage it hmm. yeah and cap uh, costs right sure absolutely and it, it helps you understand what to do you know i gave a keynote last year uh, at the Okira conference, as a matter of fact, and uh, I had no idea what I was going to say. and kept just wondering, oh my goodness, how am I going to tackle this this challenge here? And I realized that you know prioritization is so important in business these days because there are so many moving parts, because mm-hmm. there are so many ways to do things, knowing what your priorities are and knowing what to work on now is a big deal. And of course, in the data governance space, that can really help other people understand how they should be operating because your data is your resource. It's the foundation upon which you build your ideas, you design your products, you, you design your customer experience. You can't improve customer experience unless you have data that you can use to identify when someone's upset, when someone's not upset, what programs are helping, what programs are hurting. I mean, really, the data governance program needs to be, in many ways, the beating heart of the organization in an information overloaded society. Right, Saran?
0: Yeah.
2: And I mean, I hate to call that as a project. I don't tend to call that because <laughs> when you say the project, people get the idea that it has a start and an end date. Whereas this is a program, this is, there is a component to it that you would make a big one-time push, but there will be ongoing mechanisms that we had put in place where, Michael, to your point, when the new stuff comes in, this needs to get baked into our standard SDLC process. Is there, are there new critical elements as a result of this project? Do we need to do something here for data governance? So that way it stays ongoing. So, I always think it's more like a data governance program, and take yeah. that budget and the investment after the big push is done, because that's where it is going to continue to evolve.
1: Well, that that's actually a very good point, because uh, I mean, to your comment a moment ago, Michael, this is ongoing. It's there is no ending. There's no you know there there was a beginning when the business started, but there's no end to this stuff, and that's the program office's job to manage all that, right, Michael?
0: Exactly, and. You know, the essence of it is, is to use as much automation and scale, you know, just like we've been talking about with everything else so that we understand, you know, schema drift. you know, we were talking about data observability before and, you know, the kind of stuff is, um, we, we can, we can discover when things happen. And ideally, if we can see patterns, then we can start to work, move upstream to where those, where those issues are manifest and, you know, hopefully address them there.
1: Yeah and uh, I'd like to close out on that automation side of the equation and maybe uh will throw this over to you and then over to Michael you know the technologies in this space are getting very powerful at being able to crawl across networks and find systems and find data sets and extract field names for example and then be able to reconcile those field names that's a great starting point for one of these data governance programs, right? It's just to be able to scan your environment to see what's out there and then just incrementally start building out. Obviously, you focus on the low-hanging fruit. What is it you're trying to improve? Is it a compliance issue? Is it a customer experience issue? Whatever the case may be. But getting that landscape, that topography mapped is really, really important, right, Saran?
2: It is very critical. And our, I mean, you're absolutely right. Our ability with the new tooling to just connect to an instance and be able to bring in all of that technical metadata it starts to catalog is fantastic because it's before amazing. it used to be like a one by one, right? And then <laughs> if you want to kind of curate the business content on that based on what the business is looking for, I think that's where the business metadata and other things will come in the picture. But the fact that the technical connections are almost automatic I think that's one of the reasons why, depending upon what your ETL is, the choice of the governance tool goes with the ETL because if there is a direct tie right. to that, uh, which right. sometimes works. But I mean, that that's mostly the rationale people use for choosing. If you have Informatica ETL, your tool set is Informatica, I have an that's issue, right. you have mHub, those types of things.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you want these things to be as dynamic as possible, right? Because if it's not machine readable, the machine ain't reading it. Right, Michael? (laughs)
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, to take that a step deeper, um, name matching alone isn't very helpful. I mean, it's nice. It's a good start. But realistically, those of us who have, uh, you know, worked with S4, uh, you know, SAP data, um, the names you know they don't match with anything you're ever going <laughs> to see anywhere else, right? So right. We, we have to we have to, we have to have deep inspection of the actual data itself, not just the metadata. Right. So right. the tools that provide you know matching data so data set against data set and looking at values and looking for patterns and you know probabilities of of these data sets having be um, either. A derivative or the or a match set or duplication or whatever is really critical to making sure that automation works.
1: Yes, I love it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what a fantastic show we've had today. Look these gentlemen up online, Michael Baraz and Sarang Bapat. I think we're going to be trying to speak at some conferences in the near future, too. So uh, let us know. And I want to know what you want to know. Send me an email info at dmradio.biz. We are booking out the second half of the year right now. So if you want to come on the show, send me an email. You've been listening to DM Radio.